We thank you that you are alive, Lord Jesus. We thank you that though you had died that three days later because you didn't deserve death, you were raised to life again. And for that, we are eternally thankful. We're thankful for grace in our lives. We're thankful for the hope that we have in you, Christ. We're thankful that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And as we turn our attention now to your word, we ask that you'd be with us. Spirit of God, guide us as we open your word to understand it. We can't do this without you. And as we look at a long passage today, we pray you would grant us attention. And by your spirit, the ability to understand it. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. If you were to face persecution, actual suffering for your faith, how do you think you would fare? I mean, in every way, it needs to be by God's grace. None of us can fare well on our own. But there are parts of our world where people are ostracized for their faith, where when someone comes to faith in Christ, family members treat them as if they're dead. There are, there are parts of our world where the Bible isn't allowed, it's banned, and needs to be smuggled into countries so that people can have one. There are parts of our world where people are imprisoned for their faith, where sharing of the faith is illegal, and as they share their faith, they're actually imprisoned for it. And there are parts of our world where people are actually executed for their faith, for sharing their faith. We're about to look at the longest sermon in the book of Acts. It's by Stephen. It's one of the longest sermons in all of the Bible. It's beat by the Sermon on the Mount, the uh, Karen uh, group of people, the, the congregation. We're going to the Sermon on the Mount on Sunday afternoons, but we're taking, we'll be done it in the summer. So we're taking a number of months to go through the Sermon on the Mount. I'm looking at the law today from the Sermon on the Mount. But today, because of the way Stephen's uh, message shapes things, I wanted us to be able to think about uh, the message in its entirety. And I want you to think about this, and I'll come to this at the end of my message. This sermon, possibly more than any other, has changed human history. This sermon, possibly more than any other, ever preached, has changed human history. I don't know if you've ever thought about that when you've read Stephen's message as he's being executed, but I think that's true. And as we go through this message, I want you to think about our day. We're believing in the sanctity of life is something that's seen as anti-intellectual. We're talking about gender, the way the Bible would speak of it, or sexual purity, the way the Bible would talk about it, or sexual ethics is seen as repressive, where the Bible now is in many places condoned, uh, sorry, con condemned as something which people would say is unethical and shouldn't be read, not historic. When those things are being said in academia today and some laws are even coming to place around this stuff, how far are we from persecution? How far are we from this? Oh, the Lord may give us a reprieve. There may be a season where, for whatever reason, another government that's more friendly to faith will come in and grant us a season, a few years. But I don't think it's long before we see true persecution in our land. 
I'm not a naysayer. You guys know that I am the eternal optimist. I am optimistic. I mean, I remember one time the fellowship had come to visit us here. It was their first time visiting me here. It was in the old building over there. And as they arrived, there were fire trucks all outside of the building. And the fire marshal had come through and given us a list of 74 things that we had to fix before they came back the next week. And the guys from the fellowship office said, hey, we'll just go away and let, let you look after this. Because it was like Wednesday maybe, I don't remember, Tuesday or Wednesday, and this all had to be done within a week. And I said, oh, no, you guys came for lunch. Let's go for lunch. We'll work about this later. And they said, like, aren't you overwhelmed, devastated? Like, don't you want to go crawl under a rock and hide? I'm like, God's got this. Don't you guys have faith? Like, God's, they never have forgotten that. Those guys talk about that to this day. And so I recognize that I can be the eternal optimist. Uh, when, when everything's dark, I'm like, there's the light. I see light. And so I'm not a naysayer. But I'm also not going to be surprised if persecution strikes us hard within the next decade. Back to chapter 6, verse 12. I think it's important for the context of this message. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen. They brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen. They saw his face was like that of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? This is likely the same high priest that condemned Jesus, Caiaphas. Certainly, there's no record of a transition in high priest during this time. So this is likely the same high priest who condemned Jesus, to grant you the context. The Sanhedrin are the leaders of the time, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the elders of Israel. Remember that from Acts 6, have all gathered together against Stephen at this point in time, who's full of the Spirit. Two charges they lay against him. They say it very specifically. This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place, against the temple, against the place where God's presence is found, against the only place they thought where God meets with people, and against the law. The law, the way of obedience, the way to heaven. I mean, whenever Jesus was asked the question about how they must inherit eternal life, and he put it back on people like the rich young ruler, he would say, how do you think you inherit eternal life? What would they say? They, they said it all the time. That they were to follow God, keep his commands. Right? Follow God, keep his commands. Rich young ruler said, I've, I've kept all these commands since I was a boy. And so they felt that the way to the Father was through obedience. But they all knew they couldn't obey fully, and so they were in this conundrum. So Stephen, as he answers this, is answering these two questions, these two charges. You're speaking against the temple and you're speaking against the law. Remember that as I walk through this. And now I'm going to read the sermon. Verse 2. To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country, your people, God said. I will go to the land, and go to the land, sorry, I will show you. So after he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in, in Haran, after the death of his father, God sent him to the land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on, but God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land. 
even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. 400 years, for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation that serves. They serve as slaves, God said. And afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Because these patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom, enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all of his palace. When a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing suffering, great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On the second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father, Jacob, and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem, and placed in a tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came in power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and opposed our ancestors by forcing them to throw the newborn baby so they would die. At that time, Moses was born. He was no ordinary child. For three months... He was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. He went to his defense. He avenged him. He killed the Egyptian. Moses thought his own people would realize God was using him to rescue them. They did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites. They were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Man, when Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner, and he had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. He went over to get a closer look. He heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. The Lord said to him, take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy ground. I have seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses that had rejected, they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge. He was sent to be ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt. He performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. It was our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. 
But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who's led us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it, reveled in what their own hands made. God turned away from them, gave them over to the worship of the sun and the moon and the stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings? Forty years in the wilderness, people of Israel? Have you taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god, Rephan? The idols you made to worship, therefore I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. That's from Amos 5. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It was made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them. When they took the land from the nations, God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a temple for him, a house for him. However, the Most High God does not live in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all of these things? You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and your ears are uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels have not obeyed it. That is the word of the Lord. As we come to this passage, there are a number of things we have to ask ourselves. Why did Stephen preach this message? What is he trying to get at? And why would I say it's likely the most influential sermon ever preached in the history of the world by someone other than Jesus? Well, let me offer a few thoughts. As they're walking, as, as Stephen is talking through this, he's very clear out of Amos 5 as he quotes. He says, you're not following the law. You've never followed the law. You're charging me in these accusations about the law, but the law is something you've never followed. The law is something you've never really done. And he says, you've also misunderstood the role of the temple. Those are the two things he's trying to get at in his speech, in his, in his sermon. You're not following the law, you've never followed the law, and you've misunderstood the role of the temple. Then he shows them the problem. This is verse 51. You stiff-necked people. That's not a way to win friends. Your hearts and your ears are uncircumcised. You're like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. You stiff-necked people, he says. He says to the Sanhedrin, anyone, if anyone in Israel should understand what I've just said, you should. If anyone in Israel should understand what I've just explained, you should. And yet you're stiff-necked and you resist the Holy Spirit. Just for a moment, do you resist the Holy Spirit? When his convicting power comes upon you about whatever it would be, pride, generosity, 
bitterness, forgiveness. When the Spirit of God convicts you about something through the Word, do you resist Him? Or do you walk with Him? Do you grieve and quench Him? Or do you walk with Him? Are you like the Sanhedrin or are you like Stephen? Bold the Spirit. We have here in this passage Stephen saying, You're stiff necked, you're hard hearted. You resist the Holy Spirit. And then he explains what the solution to everything was. And I'll get to the meaning of it in a moment. He says, all the prophets that came, was there any one of them that you didn't persecute? In fact, you killed those people who predicted the coming of the righteous one. Interesting, Stephen doesn't call him Jesus Christ. Doesn't call him Jesus the Lord. Doesn't call him the Messiah like you see in other passages, even in Acts. He calls him the righteous one. Why? I'll get to that in a minute. And you betrayed and murdered him. You took him and you, you betrayed him, you murdered him. And then he explains it. Even though you received the law. He says to the experts in the law, it's similar to Jesus, right? When Jesus is talking about marriage, and, and as he's talking about marriage, and I believe it's the Pharisees in that encounter in Matthew are with him, and they're talking about the Old Testament and the law. And Jesus says, um, haven't you read, in the beginning God created male and female. So the Pharisees were known to memorize whole books of the Bible. And he says, hey guys, have you gotten as far as Genesis 1? Like it's quite insulting. Like, as I talk to you guys, and you're the experts in law who are supposed to have memorized whole portions of Scripture, did you get as far as Genesis 1? That's, that's what Stephen's doing here. He's saying the whole law pointed to this righteous one. The whole law pointed to the fact that Messiah was coming. The whole law pointed to Christ. And you murdered him. You betrayed him. You don't understand the law. You're charging me, Stephen says, with not understanding the law. You don't understand the law. So let me tackle three things quickly. Firstly, what's the meaning of this? Well, God met with his people without a temple. One of the things Stephen's emphasizing here. God met with Abraham, where? In Mesopotamia. No temple, not even in the promised land. You find that in verse two. God meets Joseph, where? It says it in verse nine. God was with him in Egypt. Again, no temple, not the promised land. Stephen is showing them that prior to the temple being built, God would meet with his people. God continued to meet with his people. He met with Abraham. He met with Joseph. He goes on. He met Moses in Midian. Not in the promised land. No temple. So he met Abraham in Mesopotamia. He met Joseph in Egypt. He met Moses in Midian. That's where you, in verse 31, it says he heard the Lord say at the burning bush. And he says, even though Solomon did this, even though Solomon built the temple, he then quotes from the prophet Isaiah. And he says, heaven, heaven is my throne, God says. The earth is my footstool. What kind of a house will you build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You see, Stephen gets it. I think he gets it before any of the apostles get it in this moment. I don't mean that with any disrespect. But this doesn't come from the other apostles until later. 
in the book of Acts and, and further on. And Stephen, in this moment, full of the Holy Spirit, understands something critical. That God meets people wherever he wants to because his temple is the world. And then he tabernacled himself. That's the idea of John 1. That the word became flesh and dwelt among us, dwelt, tabernacled among us. That Jesus, when he talks about, you destroy this temple, I'll build it in three days. What's he saying? He's the temple. And Stephen got it. Stephen understood it. That's what Stephen was teaching. That's what he was charged with. And when they come at him, he says, do you understand the law? God met Abraham, showed him his glory outside of the temple, outside of the promised land. God met Joseph outside of the temple, outside of the promised land. God met Moses outside of the temple, outside of the promised land. God is doing something new again. He's not speaking against the temple. The New Testament believers are gathering in the temple. You see that in Solomon's colonnade where people are coming to faith in Christ. But the Sanhedrin is angry. Because if you remember it in part of chapter 6, as the deacons are chosen and they're going out, even a number of priests began to come to faith. And so they're watching their own turn to Christ as Messiah. And they're furious. They're upset. Secondly, he talks about the law. You need to obey the law, but you can't. That's what he tells them. They all knew that they needed to obey the law and obey the law perfectly. They needed to be righteous. That's why he says, you know, the irony about your history, our history. Now remember, Stephen's Gentile. The irony about all of this is what? Irony about all of this? God, while God was giving Moses the law on Mount Sinai, you were making a golden calf. You're worried about the law? While God was giving Moses the law on Mount Sinai, you were making a golden calf. You rejected the law of God. While he was telling Moses how you should live, you decided to follow another God. You thought it would be better if you were back in Egypt. And then he talks about how God's people constantly turn from God and from the prophets. How they rejected the prophets. The prophets who granted the law of God, who explained the law of God. And then he goes on to the third point where he says, you actually rejected the deliverers. And you see this throughout his entire message. Joseph's brothers rejected him. Sold him into slavery, even though he was the deliverer. Moses' people rejected him after he killed the Egyptian, even though he was to be the deliverer. Moses uh, was also rejected when the calf was made. That's why Stephen emphasizes the rejection of Moses over and against even the rejection of God. And then David ran and hid after he was anointed as king. He's mentioned there. And so what do you make of all of this? How do we figure this out in this moment? Well, he calls Jesus the righteous one. Why? Why? Because everyone in the Sanhedrin knew you couldn't see God without righteousness. You needed to be righteous to see God. You needed to keep the law perfectly, and all of them knew they didn't do it, which is why sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice relentlessly and endlessly were brought into the temple. And as this occurs, as all of this happens, the righteous one comes at just the right time. And on the cross, 
he takes our sin. You see, God, when he looked at Jesus on the cross, he saw you. You know that, right? That's the transition that was made. It's a beautiful transition. While Jesus hung on the cross, he saw us. He didn't see his son. That's why the wrath of the Father was poured out on him. That's why Corinthians can say, he who had no sin became sin so that we could be righteous. You see, the Father treated Jesus the way we deserved on the cross because he became our sin. It's the good news of the gospel that the Father treated Jesus and took him through hell on the cross. That's suffering the wrath of the Father. That's hell on the cross. And while others delivered in spite of their suffering, Jesus delivered through his suffering. While the other prophets had to put up with suffering, it would explain their message. Jesus would deliver through his suffering. Because it's through his suffering that we are able to be saved. Well, when the members of the Sanhedrin hear this, they're furious. They gnash their teeth. But Stephen, note this again so many times in the text in chapter 6 and 7. Full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven. He sees the glory of God. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He says, look, look. I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Their livelihoods are threatened. Their beliefs are threatened. A number of priests have now left their faith, the Jewish tradition, and are following Christ. And they're at a loss. And so they're like, we're done. And they're furious. And they gnash their teeth at him. And what happens? Stephen says, look, look, I see Jesus. He's standing at the right hand of God. Heaven is opening and the Son of Man is standing at the right hand of God. Tim Keller said this about this passage. This is brilliant. While being condemned by the earthly courtroom, Stephen was commended by the heavenly courtroom. While the earthly courtroom is taking stones to kill him, the heavenly courtroom is saying, well done, my good and faithful servant. While the earthly courtroom is convicting him, the heavenly courtroom is acquitting him. While the earthly courtroom is going to put him to death, the heavenly courtroom is going to grant him life. Why? Because not only did God treat Jesus the way we deserved on the cross. And when he poured his wrath out on Jesus, he saw us. But when we stand before him one day in that courtroom of judgment in glory, he will treat us the way Jesus deserves. He will see his son. That is the gospel. And no one anywhere on this earth can take that from you. Is that not good news? You belong to Christ. His spirit is within you. Regardless of the persecution that may come our way, regardless of the fight that may be before us, regardless of what the word will bring our way, you don't need to be afraid. I'm not saying I look forward to being tortured one day if that happens. I'm not saying I want my bank account seized. I'm not saying I want to die. 
but I'm not afraid to. That's why the apostle could say to live is Christ, to die is gain. What grants you this conviction like Stephen? One, he knew the righteous one had saved him. Is that not good news? He knew the righteous one had granted him salvation. He knew the righteous one had granted him his righteousness. And he was confident of that. He knew God was with him. He knew he didn't have to be in the temple to be with God. He knew he was full of the Spirit. He knew God's Spirit was with him. Do you know God's Spirit's in you? If you're a believer today, God's Spirit is in you. He's with you this day. And Stephen knew that regardless of what the world said about him, if it was about the gospel and the way of Jesus, that Jesus would acquit him. Do you know that's true? He knew that. He was convinced of that. He wasn't egging them on. He wasn't, I want to die. He didn't have some martyr mentality or complex. Come on, guys, I want to be the first martyr for the church. He was full of the Spirit, declaring the gospel, believing they could be convicted of sin and turn and follow Christ. But instead they stoned him. They covered their ears. Is that not fascinating? Verse 57. They yelled at the top of their voices. They rushed at him in anger. And they dragged him out of the city. Because they have no rights to stone someone within city limits. It's against Roman law. And they kill him. Meanwhile... The witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. <laughs> and while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he had said this, they fell asleep. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So similar to what Jesus said on the cross, right? He gave up his spirit. Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And when he heard this, when, when he'd said this, sorry, he died. You see, remember what he charged them with? A stiff-necked people, hearts and ears that are uncircumcised. I mean, that is an insult. You resist the Holy Spirit. Stephen knew God had given him a new heart. Because that's what he does for believers. He gives them new hearts. Tender and soft to the work of the Spirit. Able to hear his still, small voice. Recognizing that we can't walk in obedience on our own. But we can as he strengthens us and empowers us. And somebody was there. Luke, as he writes his Gospels, tells us that he... Talk to eyewitnesses, because Luke is not an apostle. He's a traveling companion of the apostle Paul. And so as Luke writes the gospel of Luke and then the book of Acts, he had to talk to people about what happened. He wasn't here when this happened. 
He had to talk to people about what went on. How did he get this sermon? I don't know, but I'm going to take a guess. The Apostle Paul told him. And he remembered it all. And it impacted him greatly. And if you follow the writings of Paul, all through his writings, this sermon shows up. Everywhere. Everywhere. His righteousness given to us. He's the righteous one. He's not confined to some temple. In fact, what does Paul tell us? You are now the temple. The temple of the Holy Spirit. Wherever you go, God is with you because God is in you. Is that not great news? Paul was so impacted by this and started to realize, wow. Because Stephen understood there's a new place for the law. There's a new place for our understanding the law. Because the ceremonial law is done away with. There's only one sacrifice that's been offered for sin that could ever do that. That is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And it's explained for us over and over again in books like Hebrews that Paul didn't write, Romans that Paul wrote, Galatians that Paul wrote. And he's influenced by this man who's dying. And he hears him giving approval to his death. And then in a couple of chapters, the Spirit is going to convict Paul of his sin as the glory of Jesus just appears to him. Jesus, the resurrected one, is going to show up. And Paul is going to realize who he's persecuting. But maybe that makes this sermon the most influential sermon ever preached by anyone outside of Jesus. Because so much of our New Testament is based on it. Are you so convinced of your faith today that if the world convicts you, you know that God will commend you? Are you so convinced of your faith today that you know that if they came and even threatened your life, that to live is Christ and to die is gain? To die is gain. Are you so convinced of your faith that full of the Spirit, God could grant you the very words to speak in that moment of judgment and trial? Can I encourage you? Because some of you are thinking no. Some of you are shaking no. Can I encourage you? If you're a believer today, the same Spirit that is in Stephen is in you. He's in you to grant you the understanding of his word, to grant you the ability to stand strong in the midst of persecution and opposition. He's in you. He's in you. And the righteous one has saved you. He's granted you his righteousness by taking on your sin. Jesse, you guys can come up. And so as we close, imagine that moment. The members of the Sanhedrin have heard this. They're furious with the sermon. They gnash their teeth. And Stephen, full of the Spirit, looks up to heaven and he sees the glory of God. And Jesus, he sees Jesus standing there. 
Look, she says, look. I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Lord, may that not only be true of Stephen, may it also be true of us. We live in a new day, God. And in this new day, we can cower in fear. We could be concerned about our rights. Or God, we can choose to trust in you. So as only you can, oh God, may your spirit who is in each of us this day who knows you remind us today that we are children of the living God, that the righteous one Jesus has saved us. And spirit of God, may you fill us in a way that our love for you as Father, Son, and Spirit. God, where it will be our all. Where everything else we love will so pale in comparison. That you will be our hope. That there will be nothing else we will ever put our hope in. Not finances, not education, not job security not a marriage. You alone are our hope. And we trust in you. We pray this in the powerful and resurrected name of the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the righteous one. Amen.